0: Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, and then 17 through 29. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word.
1: Amen, thank you Susan. so good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemers. Good to see you this morning. Um, we continue in a series in this letter that Paul has written to the Roman Christians. It's a famous letter. Uh, And we're taking our time going through it because there's just so much uh, here. And so this is the third week that we've been here in chapter 2. We're moving on to chapter 3 next week, but we have one more week here. And and what you see here in Romans 2 is you have a group of religious people who are feeling morally superior to others, to the people that Paul has just finished describing in Romans chapter 1. They were looking at those irreligious people and thinking, well, you know, we're better than they are. And Paul's writing to correct that thinking, because anywhere you, you find that popping up, any, anywhere, let me say it to you this way, any, anywhere, anytime you, you find a group of religious people who are looking at the irreligious people that are around them and, and feeling morally superior to them and, uh, and thinking, you know, at least we're not as bad as those people are, it's a sign that something is really, really wrong. It's a sign that, that there's just a stale, dead religion that's operating, not the power of the gospel. And, and so we have to be really careful to say that. Just as in, in um, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, where the, the older brother is disdainful of his younger brother, and one of the lessons that you learn there is that um, there's, there's more than one kind of lostness. And that's true of these people here. Paul's very concerned about them. They're his people. And he knows that they're lost, but they're the worst kind of lost. They're lost and they don't know they're lost. They, they are spiritually sick, but they think that they're healthy. The disease of self-righteousness is raging in their, in their souls and they're not taking any medications. Instead, they're feeding, they're feeding the disease and it's just running rampant in them. And it's an important text for us because, and what I'm about to say is really, really hard, so hang in there. It's a very important text for us because the church, and I'm not thinking churches, I'm t- the church, including this church, the church is full of people who think they're Christians, but they're not. And that's my assumption. You need to know that's my assumption as we come to this text this morning. That the, that the church, that Christianity in general is full of people who would say of course I'm a Christian but in truth in reality they're not and they are not because there is no inward spiritual reality on their heart producing love and patience and peace and a willingness to suffer with joy and gratitude for them Christianity is just external form and ritual they're going through the motions I was with a group of teenagers this week in a chapel service and uh and I just watched them because I do that uh, typically when I'm around young people and uh and it made me sad because they just seemed so comatose. They sang kind of, you know, it's chapel at school, so it's not cool. It's, I mean, I get it. You're in class, you're out of class, you're going back to class. But it just seemed like it was just words on a screen. It didn't appear from outward appearance, anyway, that they felt anything about what they were singing. That there was no, what I call, no spiritual reality on the heart. And I just found myself grieved and I found myself looking, to, you know, looking at the crowd and finding the ones that I know their names and just praying for them because it's just such a danger it's such a danger that that would be true of us and then the people in Romans 2 here were judging others as a way of hiding their own inner emptiness and sin those who know that they know quite often ironically are in truth at the same time those who don't know that they don't know you follow me So when you begin to come under the influence of the gospel, what happens is there's a change in the way you, you do life. You, you stop looking out in judgment at others, and you start looking in at yourself. So there's a change in the way you think about and, and, and engage when, when the gospel begins to kind of come into your life and you come under its influence and its power and it begins to make sense to you, what happens is, is it really does change the flow there. You stop looking out at others. You start looking in at yourself. But I have to say, but not for too long because the goal is always not just to look in yourself and navel gaze and just think about how awful you are and get into a pity party. No, the goal is always to look away from yourself up to God. Faith is looking up to God for salvation, for power, for righteousness. So the gospel ultimately directs your gaze upward. Okay. It directs your gaze upward, but you have to first look inward and find nothing there. That's what we've been talking about. Only then will you look up. And in order to begin to look up, you have to first look in. And in order to look in, you have to stop looking out. Does that make sense? <laughs> and that's what Paul's after. That's what Paul's after in this text. He wants us like these people. He's trying to get them to stop looking out and saying, man, those people are awful. At least we're not like them. And start to look at themselves if you want another passage that really explains what Paul's doing here in, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he just gets to the end with the Corinthians. Those were a hard bunch of people. And he just gets to the end of the two letters he's written to them, and he finally just says, you know what, here's what I want you to Just examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's all I'm asking you to do. Examine yourself to see whether you're in your faith. Test yourself lest, lest it's true of you, that you're not truly who you believe yourself to be. And that really is where we're being pushed by this text as well this morning. Doubt is not a sign of weak faith. Overconfidence is. Presumption is. Humility, self-examination, confession, repentance. These are well-worn spiritual disciplines. And and that is exactly the, 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 the direction that Paul is pointing us here at the very end of Romans 2. And so here's the doctrine, if you want, uh, for what we're really going to kind of tr- get, you know, work our way through this morning. The doctrine of the sermon from this text would be something like this, that humans, human beings are comfortable with what is outward, visible, material, and superficial. What matters to God is a deep, inward, secret work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Let me say it again. Human beings are comfortable, we're most comfortable... And we focus most of our attention on what is outward, visible, material, and superficial. God, and what matters to God, is a deep, inward, secret work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And you see those two things contrasted in, in verses 28 and 29 at the very end of the passage. I want, really want to deal with those two verses in detail, but what we're going to do is we're going to bounce back up into the rest of the, of the passage that I've printed for you to bring out details Uh, But we're really focusing on verses 28 and 29 because it is the summary there. Those two verses are the summary of everything Paul said in in chapter 2. And here's really, you see there's two points in the sermon, and we're really just contrasting two different types of people. And here's the way I would put it to you as a summary of the sermon. Religion is a matter of external form and ritual. Christianity is a matter of internal spiritual heart reality. And then just it begs the question, which is true of you? Religion is a matter of external form and ritual. Christianity is a matter of internal spiritual heart reality. And just the lingering question is, which is true of you? Now, you'll notice that the, the, uh, the image that Paul is using to, to have this discussion is the image of circumcision. And, you know, I don't know why this is, but every time we have anything with like a little hint of sexuality, it seems like the kids are always in here instead of over there where, they're, where, they, where they usually are. So parents, I'm just thinking the Lord wants you to have some hard conversations at home. But we have to deal with this image of circumcision. Uh, I'll leave the the gory details to your explanation. I'll just say this. In Genesis, God gave circumcision to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that he made with him. And so just as baptism for us points us to a spiritual truth that we are dirty and we need to be washed, that we need to be cleansed from our idols, as Ezekiel 36 says, that we need to be sprinkled with the clean water that God promises there, Uh, And that becoming a Christian means entering into a whole new way of life. So we are buried with him in baptism and literally, you know, raised to new life. That's all of that's in baptism. It's pointing us to those realities. Circumcision for the Jews in the Old Testament served that same purpose. It was a physical sign in their body of the spiritual truth that belonging to God meant undergoing spiritual surgery. That in order to truly belong to him, you had to go under the knife. You had to go under spiritual surgery. That the old ways of life that they had learned in Egypt had to be cut away. And they had to give themselves wholly to their savior to follow his commands. Or or the consequence would be that they would be cut off. There's the illusion again. So the cutting involved in circumcision pointed to both faith and the consequences of unbelief it's fascinating it pointed both to what needed to happen in them and also what god would do to them if they did not prove faithful to him but over time it lost its theological significance it became a marker of cultural identity rather than spiritual you know ra- rather than something that spiritual it lost its spiritual significance they were circumcised they received the mark in their body but nothing was different on the inside. And so it became the perfect, the perfect illusion for the conversation that Paul wants to have here about the difference between those that are merely religious and formal and external and genuine inner heart transformation. So Paul is differentiating between Jews that are only culturally Jewish and the true Jew, the person who's a true Jew, who doesn't have to be a Jew by birth, the believing person. And we're gonna make the distinction for our time and space here between the person that is just merely religious. That's had some maybe kind of a religious experience. But it's not really changed anything on the inside. And then the person who has genuinely, truly come to faith in Jesus. And, and lives from a believing heart. Because those are two very different things. And so first, let's look first at those that Paul describes as religious. And concerned only with with merely with external form and ritual. So this first group, he describes as the circumcision or is circumcised as religious, but only outwardly. Do you see that designation? They're only outwardly. They've only they've experienced circumcision, but it's only verse 28. The outward and the physical, the outward and the physical. So Christianity is not an outward and physical reality. These people, Paul's addressing in Romans 2, they believe that God makes a distinction between Jews and Gentile, that that there are that they are different in God's eyes simply because. One of them is Jewish and the other is not simply because of the the cultural, you know, ethnic reality between the two peoples. And this is what Paul's arguing against in the whole of Romans 1 through 3. If you have a Bible and you want to look ahead in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, he says there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, And what he means by that is there's no difference. Jew and Gentile are not different. They're alike. Both stand condemned under God, both are liable to the wrath of God because verse 11 here in our passage says very clearly God shows no partiality. Such an important phrase. God shows no partiality. Now to be partial, of course, is to have a preference for one thing over another. is to take a side in a dispute, to be biased. So I am partial to Coke, not Pepsi. So much so that I can literally tell you the restaurants in town that sell Pepsi because I don't go there. And I've stopped going to the restaurants that sell the Coke and and the stupid machines because it tastes horrible and you got to wait 35 minutes for somebody to pick up, you know, (laughs) people freeze on those things because there's like 95 different things they can choose from. I am partial, I'm partial to garnet and gold. I'm partial, even this year, I am partial to Chipotle and not Moe's, although that really is objective reality and not subjective whatsoever. You get the idea. You get the idea? Partiality. The Jews believed that God was partial to Jews. Their whole theological system was built on this idea that they were his chosen people. And what happened to them is their religious and cultural identity became a righteousness. The Jews would say, we have the law, we have circumcision, we are the children of Abraham were better than you. God loves us more. That was the position of Jewish people toward all non-Jewish peoples around them. And that is what Paul's referring to when he says in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, look there. And rely on the law and boast in God. He's saying, you, you think it's special to be called a Jew among God's people. You rely upon the law. That doesn't mean obeying the law, because we're going to see in a minute they didn't obey the law. It just means that they see themselves as a part. They have a special status because they possess the law. It doesn't matter whether they obey the law. That's the irony. That We have the law. That's all that matters. We have it. We don't have to obey it. We just, we just have it. And then he says, and you boast in God. It sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? And we're supposed to do that right. But here it means... That, you, that, that these people were feeling superior to others because in their mind they enjoyed a special relationship with God as his chosen people that other people did not have. And this, we find out in the book of Acts, was a real hindrance to the mission of Christianity in the early church. That You know, Christianity was a, a Jewish movement for the first five to ten years after Jesus' death. It was contained in Jerusalem. And then as it began to spill out, over into the Greek world and spread to non-Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire, it sent the church into crisis because as non-Jewish people began to believe and come into the church and, and they were being given the same status as those Jewish peoples that had believed previously, people just kind of lost their minds. The Jewish Christians started asking, well, what about circumcision? Circumcision. Do you remember Paul in Galatians? There was that issue of do they need to be circumcised or not? What about the law? These Gentiles that are becoming, you know, Christians and joining our church, they need to obey the law the way we do to be a part of the church. And these are the kinds of issues that we see happening in the New Testament. And what, what, what happened there is that the gospel of grace in Jesus, the righteousness of God that comes through faith and not through the law, that, that idea of the, the gospel was challenging their idea of right, righteousness. They were confronted with the reality that the Gentiles could be righteous without being Jewish. That righteousness did not... Righteousness without Jewishness. And without circumcision or the law. And so the Jewish Christians began to stand in the way of the gospel. At least at first. Until there's this decisive moment in Acts chapter 10. Where Peter learned the same lesson that Paul is trying to teach us here. Peter had to have a vision from heaven, and the lesson that he learned is God shows no partiality. In the gospel, according to Colossians 3, there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all. These are all examples of distinctions that we make to assign superiority to one group over another in order to pass out righteousness. Righteousness. But in the gospel, righteousness is not a matter of belonging to the right group. Christ is all. It doesn't matter what group you belong to, it matters if you're in Christ. And so, if you want a modern equivalent, and I hope this digs, I hope this kind of digs and makes you a little uncomfortable. Here would be a modern equivalent if we had to translate for our day and time that same verse in Colossians 3. There is no black and white, no American and non American, no evangelical and mainline, no Calvinist and Arminian, no conservative or liberal. Not so many amens after that. God shows no partiality. It, someone who be doesn't belong to your group but belongs to the group that your group is opposed to, it's possible that they could be Christian. Because being a Christian doesn't, doesn't require that you belong to the right group. You see what I'm saying? Can you feel that? Yeah. That's kind of that. That's uncomfortable. Good. It should be. Because Christianity is not outward and physical. It's not a matter of belonging to the right group. It's about whether you've had a transformative experience of God's grace. Religion says if you do it right, if you get the right baptism, if you believe the right doctrine, if you belong to the right group, you can be righteous. External form and ritual. But Romans 2 says it doesn't matter what nation you were born into. It doesn't matter what denomination you were baptized into. It doesn't matter what theological system you ascribe to. It doesn't matter what political party you're affiliated with. Righteousness doesn't have anything to do with any of that. Okay? Nobody is any better than anybody else in God's eyes. We're all under the same verdict. Romans 3.10, which is what Paul's working towards. There is none righteous, no, not righteous. One, and yet this person here bucks against that. No, no, there's there's got to be some things. There, you, belonging to the right group is an important thing. And so, let me describe then as I'm as I'm explaining this this outward external thing here. Let me describe this person whose religion is merely outward and physical, for the sake of our self-examination. What does this look like? So that we can know if it applies to us. So is this you? That's the question. Well, there's a number of things. Okay, the first is just externalism. I mean, there's just a there's just a, you know, a clear externalism to these people. The criticism Jesus leveled against the Jewish religious leaders is that they would go to such lengths to portray a certain image on the outside and neglect the internal dimensions of their lives. They would work hard, this is the way he put it, to this is Luke 11, to clean the outside of the cup, but the inside remained Unclean, full of greed and wickedness. So they would focus on on the exterior, and they would ignore or even neglect the interior life of the heart. They would worry about how they were appearing to other people, instead of paying attention to the desires and the motivations and the reasonings of their own heart. They were. So concerned with fulfilling the obligation of the tithe, he goes on to say there in Luke chapter 11, if you can imagine, they would go out into their garden and they would count the leaves of every herb to make sure every tenth leaf was included in their tithe. But the heart attitudes the tithe aimed at, you know, they they didn't care about anything as far as what was happening in their own heart. They were only concerned with what, never why. It was outward ceremony and display And what about you? I'm going to ask a lot of diagnostic questions, okay, because that's the point of this passage. What about you? Are you overly concerned with making a good impression on others? Do you ever think beyond the fruit to the root of of your sin? To really kind of dig into your own heart and try to figure figure out what's going on in the reasonings and the inclinations there? There's externalism. Secondly, a second characteristic is uh, there's also just a, a movement towards intellectualism. And I'm owing to Martin Lloyd-Jones here, who's one of my favorite preachers, and he had, a, you know, 15 sermons on this chapter or whatever. But he said the Jews were interested in the law, but it was an intellectual exercise. Paul obviously goes after this in, in verse 13, where he says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers who are justified. So the Jews love to hear the law. They, they would sit around and debate the finer points of the law, but they never get around to actually obeying it. <laughs> They uh, they love they love the theological arguing, and I would just say to you, Christianity is, is theological, but it's not theoretical. Can I say that again? Christianity is theological, but it is not theoretical. I tried to make this point at the beginning of the series. Theology is application. We don't read. This is really important. We don't read the Bible to learn theology. We read the Bible to learn obedience. Theology is important to obedience. But Christianity is not just truth. Christianity is applied truth. It's truth that comes home to the heart. Jonathan Edwards says it's religious affections. It's the heart on fire with the truth, not intellectual detachment, not going through the motions. You sing, and this is what I pray for us all the time. I walk this room on Tuesdays, and I just pray that this would be true of our church, that we would sing. And when we sing, that we would feel the reality of the truths in the hearts that we're singing, that there would be joy and tears and Falling on our knees and lifting up our hands in quiet reverence and loud revelry. Even though it's a Presbyterian church, all of those things. Because, that's, because it's, it's got to be something more than just an intellectual approach. What about you? Do you feel gospel truths? Is your Bible reading an, just an intellectual exercise? When you talk about your faith, hear me. When you talk about your faith, can you talk about your heart and not just doctrine? The way things impact you inwardly. Can you talk about that? Thirdly, so there's externalism and intellectualism. Then third, these, as he goes on to describe these people, you see there's self-satisfaction and boasting. There's feelings of spiritual superiority that lead to confidence and a false sense of security. Verse 19, he's, he's, Paul begins, If you're going to read uh, Paul wrong if you don't realize that he loves sarcasm. And so if you love sarcasm... There you go. Paul would get sarcastic with people, and here he's being sarcastic. He is laying into these people, beginning in verse 19. He says, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness and so forth. Now, so, you know, he says, he says these things, and I love Martin Lloyd-Jones here, too. He says that this person, this is the way he puts it, he says, Paul's describing a person who's on wonderful terms with himself. <laughs> he doesn't see any lack in himself. Whereas the Bible uses words like weakness and fear and trembling to describe the way Christians go about their lives, not this person. He's supremely confident. He never questions himself. He never examines himself. He sees no need for any self-examination. It's danger. What about you? Are you ever self-critical? Because you see here, externalism and intellectualism and self-satisfaction and boasting, and all of it leads, lastly, to the, kind of the last thing that Paul Reveals to us here, and that is that it leads to hypocrisy, to self-deception. If you don't ever examine yourself, you'll be deceived. Self self self-deception and hypocrisy. These people Paul is writing to in Romans two have the wrong opinion about themselves. Listen to how he describes their description of themselves again he's not saying these things are true of them he's saying you think these things are true of you so he says if you call yourself a jew verse 17 and rely on the law and boast in god and know his will and approve what is excellent and you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of the truth you can just just dripping with sarcasm it's a spiritual resume of sorts they have a very high opinion of themselves, but they don't see themselves rightly. They see so clearly when it comes to everybody else, when they judge, but they don't see the truth about themselves. You, boast, you who boast in the law, verse 24, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says that's the truth. Not the stuff that you think to be true of yourself up there in 17 through 21. They were judging others, but the truth was is that as they're doing the judging, they're revealing they're guilty of doing the very same thing. So that the unbelieving people who were watching were saying, they're no different from us. Why should we follow their God? He, can't, he, he is not powerful enough. To even, they're, they're absolutely no different. What, what, what do they have to offer me? What about you? Do you know where your blind spots are? Do you know you have blind spots? Are you enlisting the help of others to see yourself rightly? Because these are the dangers, this externalism and intellectualism, self-satisfaction and boasting, and then uh, all leading to hypocrisy. But here we see, that's the first group, these religious people concerned with outward form and, and ritual. But there's a second group of people, and we'll be much quicker here. And they're very different. They've had an internal an inner transformative experience of God's grace. A true believer is one inwardly. Christianity, we're told in verse 29, is a matter of the heart by the spirit. So what matters is not external form and ritual, but internal spiritual reality. Well, what do I mean? We talk about this a lot, but Jonathan Edwards in his book entitled Religious Affections, he describes the difference between what he calls a theoretical knowledge of God and then the difference being having a sense of him on the heart. He says it's the difference, if you've ever, if you've ever had honey... Uh, You know, it's a difference between saying, I know honey's sweet because somebody's told you and you've never actually tasted it. And having tasted it and saying, no, I've actually had, I've had the taste of it on my tongue. There's a big difference between those two kinds of knowledge. And so he says, true religion consists in holy affections. It was a monumental thing for him to write at the time. True religion consists in holy affections. Affections, Edward says. Not just emotion. He means he means this. He means the sign that you're really a Christian is that you're affected by the truth of Christianity. That it changes the way you think and live. It shapes the internal dimensions of your life with joy and peace and hope and desire and sorrow and gratitude and all of this is internal. But uh, internally, it's so powerful of a reality internally in your life that it will affect your countenance. In other words, one of the way, one of the ways that you know when you really start starting to believe the gospel deeply is when it starts to show up on your face. It needs to show up on your face. True circumcision is heart change. Inner trans- transformation that results in a life of obedience. What matters in religion is not what you believe or what group you belong to. What matters is obedience. I mean, it comes out in verses 25 through 27. Paul's saying using circumcision as an illustration. Look there, this is really important. He says, if you're circumcised, this is, these are my I'm uh, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing verses 26 and 27. In verse 26 he says, if you're circumcised, but you aren't obedient to God's law, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And in the next verse he says, if you're uncircumcised, but you're obedient, then your uncircumcision is regarded as circumcision. What's that mean? John Stott put it this way. He says circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision, while uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Confused yet? (laughs) What matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but obedience. That's the whole point. That true Christianity is inner spiritual reality that results in obedience from the heart. Justification is by faith alone. But true faith is never alone. It always results in a changed life because, we learned in chapter 1... That the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Don't forget. Now, let me try to describe this kind of person like I did the first, okay? For the sake of our self-examination, again, is this you? I have four things here, too. First, this is a person. This person's experience rather than just external form or ritual, something inner, heart, change. This is a person who prioritizes the hidden person rather than the external. When God chooses David as king in 1 Samuel 16, he taught us an important lesson that he does not see as man sees, that he does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart, and so should we. A true Christian, verse 29, is one inwardly, and therefore we should be focused on the inner parts of our lives as well. Like Peter describes, that our adornment, our adornment not being external, but the hidden person of the heart, girls, teenage girls, that your adornment would be to become beautiful on the inside, Because that's the part that's going to last forever. So what about you? What's more important to you? Outward physical beauty or inward soul beauty? What gets more of your time and your energy? Prioritizing the hidden person. Secondly, what characterizes this person is not only that, but but obedience from the heart. Verse 29, circumcision is a matter of the heart, we're told. That even in the Old Testament, circumcision was meant to point to something that needed to happen on the inside, not just to the body, but to the heart. So the prophets would say to Israel, Circumcise your hearts. And I'm sure they looked. what? What does that mean? Christianity is about a new heart, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Isn't that a beautiful verse that Brad read? Where God says, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna sprinkle water on you, I'm gonna take your heart of stone out from inside here. I'm gonna put a heart of Does anybody want that? Is anybody oh take this heart of stone? that's just dead and weighing me down and give to me a heart of flesh that would be moved by your spirit to obey your commands. That's what God promises. A whole new set of desires and motivations and love, a new heart that that makes obedience possible. Not just obedience, but in Romans 6, 17, we'll get there in a few weeks. Obedience from the heart. Obedience from the heart. I mean, that that phrase astounds me. It means Joyful obedience that is not coerced coerced by fear or guilt. Obedience from the heart, willing, you know, wanting obedience. There's an old hymn that says, God's pardoning voice is so powerful it turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. Obedience from the heart, not duty. What about you? When you think of obedience, is it I have to today or is it I can't believe I get to there's a big difference, isn't there? Is it duty or is it delight? Why are you here this morning? Is it, ah, I? I better get there. Now, see, the inner, the inner hidden person of the heart, obedience from the heart. Thirdly, we're told all this happens by the Spirit, not the letter, verse 29. There's an expansiveness, in other words. The letter... We'll get back to this later in, in, in future sermons. Le- the letter is lit- refers to the literal minimalist interpretation of the law. Physical circumcision only, being, being motivated by coercion from the outside, being afraid of consequences if you don't do the right thing, uh, being motivated by guilt. Guilt, if you don't do what you should do, what, what you know you should do, and then if you do find yourself able to do it, then resentment. That's the letter. The letter gives you two options. Either guilt if you don't do it or resentment if you do, but never joy. But the Spirit, the Spirit, and do you notice there, the Spirit is capitalized. It's not just Spirit lowercase, the Spirit capital S. The Holy Spirit is the true expansiveness of being motivated inwardly by the presence and power of God. The Spirit living inside of us. What about you? Are you a minimalist when it comes to obedience? Do you live from a sense of scarcity or abundance? Do you have such an internal compulsion that you go above and beyond. Then lastly, the last thing we're told here about these people, just for the sake of our self-examination, is that there's a new motivational core. Keep going in verse twenty-nine. Jews went inwardly, circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not for man but from God. In John five, Jesus describes people going around constantly trying to get glory from one another, doing things to get attention, to get applause or Appreciation or just sometimes pity because they, they don't have the love of God within them. Max Lucado wrote a, a, a children's book years ago about these wooden people uh, called Wemicks who they're, All they did was run around fixing stars and dots to each other based on their performance. And then glorying and having the most stars and, and d- disdaining those with dots. It's like a big game. And the prize is the praise of men. But here we're told that there is a praise that is from God. Isn't that great? You believe that? That, 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 that to, have, to have the love of God in your heart, it's possible to have the love of God in your heart filling you up on the inside so you don't need the applause and the approval and the praise of the crowd. And it changes the way you do life. You do good, but it, it can be in secret. It doesn't have to be, to be seen by others. What about you? Is that true, or do you live for the affirmation of others? You see, they're two different peoples. Two different peoples, and which one? Which one are you? We have to do some hard work of thinking this, this stuff out. But then one last thing as we come to the table this morning. Then how is, it that, how is it that this transformation takes place? How is it that we become less like the first and more like the second? And I would point you to Colossians 2, which we read earlier in the service. And in Colossians 2, Paul writes to the Christians, Jew and non-Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. And he says to these people, Brad read this, he says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, you were dead and God made you alive, he says. Now listen, here's what this means. Paul's talking about the cross. And he's saying on the cross, Jesus was cut off. That's why he calls it. He says that Jesus, there was a circumcision. Uh, Jesus was cut off. Jesus went under the knife. It was bloody. It was violent. He got the curse that we deserve. And if your faith is in him, it says that you were cut off with him, that you were buried with him. And because you were buried with him, by the power of the spirit, you've been raised with him in the powerful working of God who is undoing your deadness and giving you new life. That's the circumcision of the heart. A new heart, a heart of stone being transformed into a heart of flesh, a new attitude towards the law because of the work of Christ for you. Jesus died to satisfy the demands of the law. Jesus was cut off for you instead of you. And all of the beauty of his law keeping, all the beauty of his life is transferred to you. You were in him when he died. He is in you, animating your life by the Spirit to obedience from the heart. And so Paul ends Galatians, and we should end this morning, far be it from me. To boast, except in the cross of Christ, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What about you? Are you just religious? Busy? With outward form and ritual? Or are you a new creation? It is the strategy of the enemy to keep us looking at out at others so that we never look in and assess our own spiritual condition it's a brilliant strategy and so this morning as we come to this table we're going to take a minute to look in brandon's going to lead us but as he leads us to do that don't forget don't forget as you look in that the ultimate goal is that you would look up look up to the one who saves look up to the savior jesus he is our hope let's pray so father as we come now to this table to share this meal together, we do pray that you would help us, help us to not be so consumed with looking around and comparing ourselves to everybody that we see and paying no attention to our own hearts. It is the road to death and to condemnation and to hypocrisy. And so we do pray that you would help us, that you would turn our gaze inwards so that we ultimately might see it turn upwards. But that takes a lot of courage because it can be scary to take a look at your own heart. There's a lot of ugliness there. And we'd rather just shield our eyes from that and keep pretending. But that, help us, help us to not do that. May your spirit come and give us great courage to be truthful, maybe for the first time about what we see inside, knowing that Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That there is no sin in us that can condemn us. And we don't need to be afraid of being honest. But that to see you transform the inner parts of our lives, we have to be first honest about what we find there. And that's what I pray happens in the room this morning. And then as we run to this table, run to this table for mercy and grace for sinners such as us. That we would find joy and peace and passion and enthusiasm and evangelistic zeal for the sake of your great name so it would not be said of us as it was said of these in Romans 2 that your name was defamed among the nations because of because of them but instead that we would be a people as we live in the city that you've called us to that would bring great glory and honor to your name that the people would see our beautiful works wrought in us by your spirit and give you glory that's our hope and prayer and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love the quiet moment we had there just before communion. You know how unusual it is. Churches don't do quiet very much. Uh, but so much of what Christianity is is that pausing to reflect. To take an honest assessment, that's, that's, a, that's a prescription for spiritual health. But, but we cannot become too inward, inward thinking, inward looking, inward grow, in, you know, in growing. He sends us out into the world. So we look in so that we can look up, so that we can move out. And that's what this is. This is ascending. Uh, we are those who are called not to look down upon the world in which we live in judgment and condemnation, thinking we're better than because of the powerful experience of God's grace in Jesus Christ to us. We go now wanting everybody we meet to have the same experience. Not believing ourselves to be any better than anyone else, but to be sent on a mission uh, by God himself uh, to tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever weakness you may have as you contemplate that mission, he can make it strong in his love. And so receive these words of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.